Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today my guest is Dr. J.V. Fesco. Dr. Fesco is the Harriet Barber Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology at RTS Jackson. He's authored a dozen or so books on topics of Reformed theology and history, and today we're talking about his new book just released with Baker Academic, The Need for Creeds Today, Confessional Faith in a Faithless Age. Dr. Fesco, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Zach. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, we're, we're glad to have you here and, and excited to talk about this really timely book you've written. But before we do that, could you tell us something about yourself and, and maybe what type of work you've done in the past? I've been a, uh, a minister, basically, of the gospel uh, for the past 20-plus years. I was uh, uh, you know, raised in, uh, born and raised in a Christian home, and my parents uh, always took us to where there was strong preaching. And, and long story short, you know, I sensed a call to go to ministry. So I went uh, to seminary. And when I got out of seminary, ended up um, uh, seeking uh, ordination in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, a small Presbyterian church that began in the, in the uh, 1930s. And so um, I uh, went and pursued my doctoral studies and then was a pastor uh, a church planner and a pastor for about a little bit under 11 years. And then I went to, uh, at that time, I was uh, a part-time professor and a full-time pastor. And then I kind of switched and I went to being a, a full-time professor and, and kind of doing part-time pastoral work, primarily through preaching. And uh, so I was uh, a professor at Westminster Seminary, California, out in Escondido, California. But uh, as you noted at the uh, intro, uh, I have, within the last uh, 18 or 20 months or so, have been serving here at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, teaching uh, his systematic and historical theology. And so uh, it's uh, it's been a, a great pleasure to, to move here to, to Jackson and to be a part of the uh, RTS uh, family. And so we uh, we really love it, and uh, we're having a great time here and uh, anticipate many, many more fruitful years to come. That's great. Well, in this book that you've written, The Need for Creeds Today, you frame the work nicely against the backdrop of our current age where there's a noticeable antithopy of the past. So maybe you could give us an overview of what you do in the book and how this project helps provide an answer to a cultural rejection of, of tradition. Yeah, I think that here in the United States, there's a, a particular antipathy, as you noted, against uh, creeds, it, it rubs against the grain of the uh, individualistic nature uh, of our culture that's, that seems to be just ingrained in us uh, as a society and as a people in our, in our history. I mean, there's a sense in which we're a nation that was born uh, out of revolution, and uh, therefore we have a certain suspicion towards authority. Uh, and so I think that uh, that those those founding ideals, as well as those uh, founding uh, paths, uh, made their way into the church, and so uh, I think we find against this particular backdrop the idea of 
living in a uh, in a uh, in an age where uh, people are not terribly keen on embracing confessions of faith. And so uh, I, I wrote this book partially in the effort to show the importance of biblical uh, biblically uh, subordinated confessions of faith. That is confessions of faith that we that we uh, we create as churches. Uh, or adhere to as churches, but that they're always going to be subordinate to the to the scriptures and to the authority of the Bible. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I try to argue that uh, these confessions of faith are things that are not just simply uh, beneficial for the church, but it's actually uh, something that scripture enjoins upon us. And then I go and I talk about the various reasons as to why uh, confessions of faith uh, have been opposed uh, over the last several centuries. And then uh, I talk about uh, the continuity between the confessions of the Reformation era and then in the post-Reformation era, because uh, some critics uh, pit those two uh, periods of, of history against one another, as if uh, the, the Reformation is the Garden of Eden and the post-Reformation is the fall. And then from there, I, I talk about uh, you know the importance of uh, confessions and piety, because I think often it's the case that people want to caricature confessions of faith by saying that they just uh, foster a cold rationalistic precisionism in in doctrine, uh, but that they do not in any way uh, breed or foster piety. And I say that if we're paying careful uh, attention to the scriptures as well as careful attention to these documents that our forebears have have written, uh, then we'll see that uh, piety, that is a devotion to Christ and to our neighbor, uh, and and confessions go hand in hand. And so that's a, a quick overview of the book, but uh, obviously readers will probably find a whole lot more if they pick up the book and, and read it uh, chapter by chapter. Sure. Well, you mentioned at the very beginning this, the Ralph Waldo Emerson perspective that, that you mentioned, it's it's one that sees tradition as negative and, and it's also encouraging individuals to develop their own outlooks and, and intellectual frameworks for, for considering themselves within history. Mm-hmm. What else, what else would you say is, is contributing to the modern move toward individualism? I think that at present it's the uh, atomization of culture and all I can do is describe it as maybe a salad bar approach to life in that, if we live in a time where we can get online and we can uh, curate content for ourselves, that's uh, that's a buzzword these days. You know, you can go to say a website like Stitch Fix, uh, which is a clothing website, and you can, they will curate curate a collection of clothes for you. In that you you enter in all of your personal preferences, and then once a month uh, they'll send you a collection of clothes that you can either keep it all or send uh, as much or as little back as you want, but it's a curated collection. And so people think, well, if I can have this kind of approach to um, my life and I can have curated collections of clothing sent to me, I can have uh, curated collections of news stories that uh, cascade into my inbox for my email account on a daily basis. If I can subscribe to particular uh, people on uh, Twitter or Facebook or whatever various social media outlets there are, Instagram, then why can't I and shouldn't I be able to do this with my religion? Why can't I build a religion that uh, you know takes elements of popular culture, Christianity, 
and perhaps, you know, even uh, other religions, Zen Buddhism or Islam, and just combine it together to create my own designer, personalized, curated religion. And so I think that those are a lot of the trends that we're working against, but yet uh, against the backdrop of uh, the, 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 the historic church, say, going back at least to the time of Christ, uh, we'll, we can see through a, a quick survey of history that this is not the way that the church has operated and that you can find um, hundreds uh, of confessions of faith and creeds scattered throughout the past two millennia, uh, millennium, or millennia, I should say. And, uh, and therefore, uh, we need to kind of stop uh, take our heads uh, out of our individualized and personalized worlds and uh, look around historically to see why is it that at present the patterns of religion are significantly different than our confessional uh, historical past. Well, as we think about confessions of faith, their usage has been in decline in American religion. And you talk about that here in this book. Is this decline uniform across all Christians, or are, are there maybe some groups you're aware of that have resisted religious individualism? I think that for the most part, the majority report is that most Christians in the West, uh, you know, lean away from, uh, you know, confessions of faith, or at least certainly in Protestantism, that's the case. But if you um, look at, say, confessional Protestants, and they come in a number of different stripes, whether they be uh, Lutheran or Anglican or Presbyterian or coming out of the Dutch continental reform tradition, there's always been a, um, you know, a small and albeit feisty minority uh, within the church that has uh, adhered to these various confessions of faith. And so that's always uh, an important observation to make. But if you count it in terms of, say, uh, a, a massive body like the Roman Catholic Church, that's going to be a body that is very confessional. Now, obviously, the degree to which the magisterium or the church adheres to its confessional heritage versus the person in the pew uh, is going to be, uh, there's going to be a difference there, I think. Uh, but at the same time, uh, at least as a body or as an institution, the Roman Catholic Church, which I don't know what the latest statistics are, how many millions of uh, Roman Catholics there are in the world, that would obviously constitute a, um, a significantly large body of uh, confessional uh, professing Christians. Well, um yeah, I, I think that's helpful. And what would you say uh, if if we look at the decline, maybe uh, reflecting on, on the longer history of the Christian church, say the last 2,000 years? Well, I think that confessionalism and creedalism really uh, was going strong up until about the 17th century. And this is one of the things that I talk about in the book when I talk about uh deconfessionalization or the idea that, uh, you know, where confessions of faith uh, began to decline. And a lot of this is due to the fact that, at least in the 16th century, as popular and as widespread as confessions of faith were, uh, it was also a time in history when uh, people and institutions uh, typically had uh, violence 
and theology uh, wedded together. And I always try to remind my students that when we study the past, we can't bring the past into the future and expect uh, people from centuries ago to operate by 21st century norms and mores. But what we have to do, therefore, is transport ourselves back into the past and try to situate ourselves uh, in, uh, in, 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 the, in the past so that we can have a better understanding as to what our ancestors believed, what they did, and how they conducted themselves. And in this particular case, you had a number of violent and bloody conflicts that were fought along confessional lines, whether the Thirty Years' War, which was the bloodiest conflict in all of world history uh, until World War I, where uh, some eight million people were killed, uh, largely upon uh, confessional lines, that is, uh, Protestant versus Roman Catholic. And you had the English Civil War, which once again was fought largely upon confessional lines in terms of uh, royalist forces uh, versus Presbyterians, or those who were seeking to uh, uh, set up uh, Presbyterianism uh, in England and in Scotland and in Ireland. And so you had uh, people object to this type of conduct, most famously Thomas Hobbes, who accused the Presbyterians of fomenting violence. And so after a while, when you have quite literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who die uh, because of theologically motivated uh, you know, uh, disagreements, then what happened is that confessionalism, I think, basically took, took a hit and uh, combined that with the Enlightenment and the rise and supremacy of human reason as being the supreme authority, even over the scriptures, uh, the developments of, say, the, the modern university of biblical criticism, uh, it created something of a perfect storm to uh, really uh, hamper and to impede uh, the use of creeds and confessions in the church. Again, this is not to say that they were entirely swept away, but at the same time, uh, it, these were causes of what we can say were uh, the deconfessionalization of large portions of the church. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Um, well, as we get to the argument of the book, um, you're saying confessions are needed today. Is it is it that they would be merely beneficial or, or is it something more? Yeah, I think it's something more than that because, uh, you know, you could look at it practically and you can say, oh, sure, I see the practical benefit of creeds and confessions. But uh, I would argue that it's more than just simply practically beneficial, but that it's actually biblically mandated upon us in the sense that you see a number of places in the scriptures, say in the Old Testament, where, uh, you know, you had the Israelites celebrating the Exodus and as they were celebrating the Passover and the Exodus, uh, you know, and the Lord tells them in Exodus chapter 13, that when your children ask you what all of this means, particularly referring to the, um, the Lord's, uh, or sorry, the, the, uh, the celebration of the Passover, that he said, you're to explain to them. And as I, as I note in the book, this means that they were to explain the doctrinal significance of their activities it's, I think, unquestionable that their explanations would have had to go beyond 
the words of Scripture uh, and yet at the same time stay consistent with Scripture. Uh, and this is, I think you could say, an early form of creedalism. Uh, uh, along those lines, uh, you know, the Lord gives to Israel uh, the, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, you know, and so they were not only supposed to take that, which essentially is a confession of faith, but they were supposed to teach that uh, to their children uh, and pass on this faith. But I think a couple of the places in the New Testament where you see this trend is in Paul's uh, well-known trustworthy sayings, or some translations render it as, you know, this is a faithful saying, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So what Paul is doing is he's taking extra-biblical sayings of the church that summarize the teachings of Scripture, the teachings of Christ, and he is incorporating them into uh, the New Testament, into his, into his letters. And what I, what I claim here, what I argue, is it's, it's something that falls along the similar lines as, say, preaching. When God enjoins the church to preach his word, he does not restrict us simply to reading his word, but rather he calls upon preachers to preach the word, to use their own words, but their own words have to trace the teaching of Scripture, and they have to be consistent with it. Well, in those, in, in, along those lines, with Paul incorporating these faithful sayings, these are extra-biblical sayings, or dare I say confessions, that Paul essentially says that they're so uh, close and accurate in conveying the truth of Scripture that he incorporates them in his letters. And so what I argue is, is that what creedalism at its core represents is the fact that we as the church should likewise reflect upon the scriptures, create our own faithful sayings, uh, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge that as Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit and we are not, we always have to ensure that our faithful sayings, like a sermon preached or like a prayer that we pray, like a hymn that we sing, are always subordinate to and consistent with uh, the teaching of Scripture. And so from this vantage point, I say that they're not merely practically beneficial, but rather in this sense, they're biblically uh, incumbent upon us. Well, your first chapter explores several of, of those passages of Scripture, which you argue you know, demonstrates this need for churches to have their confessions. Um, can you walk us through some of the rest of those and, and maybe what you conclude from them. I know you've kind of touched this, touched on this already. And then, and then also at the end of, of this first chapter, you make this connection between confessions and piety. Um, I was wondering if you could, you could speak on that as well. Yeah. You know, one of the other passages I treat, for example, is second Timothy chapter two verses 11 and following where Paul says the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so here, what this trustworthy saying does is, I think we could say it finds its conceptual roots in Christ's teaching from Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, when he says, You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end 
uh, will be saved. It also echo, echoes what Paul writes in Romans 6, 8, when he says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will, uh, also, we will also live with him. And so this is to say that they're, you know, the church is taking biblical truth and uh, they are um, uh, restating it in their own words. And then, in a sense, they were codifying these truths, at least orally, uh, by passing it to other people of the church. And in this case, Paul codifies the truth in writing. And that, I think, is what we see in our own creeds and confessions, the codification of biblical truths that we find in the scriptures uh, that we codify not only for the present generation, but also for generations to come. And this in particular, I think, is what you see, especially in those earlier Old Testament passages that I mentioned, whether it's uh, Exodus 13 or Deuteronomy 6, that the Lord enjoins upon us the necessity to catechize or to educate future generations so that when we write these confessions of faith or these creeds, we're not just writing them for ourselves, but we're writing them so that we can pass down the faith, as Jude says, once delivered to the saints, this objective body of truth to future generations. And along those lines, it's not merely about passing down uh, doctrinal propositions, although we undoubtedly want to pass down clear, cogent, and biblical uh, doctrinal propositions. If you go back to the Shema, when it's Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, you know, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As And Christ, of course, in Matthew twenty two thirty seven establishes this, uh, defines this as the, the, the chief and first and foremost commandment. But notice that in that confession of faith, you have wedded to it the necessity of piety. In this case, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that confessions, uttering true doctrinal statements, and piety, godliness, holiness, love, mercy, kindness, uh, whatever uh, you know, list of biblical virtues that we want to uh, connect together from Scripture— those two things go hand in hand. It's never supposed to be, as Yaroslav Pelikan says, uh, the, uh, the dead faith of the living, but rather it's supposed to be the living faith of the dead that we profess. And uh, that's, that, that's so important to note that connection between piety and confessions. I think that's really helpful. Well, you, you make the argument from Scripture. You also engage the Reformation tradition. Um, and you have a you have a chapter that considers the history of confessions from from 1500 to 1700. There's some criticism out there that confessions from the post Reformation uh, they lack continuity with those before. Do you find any merit in these critiques? And um, and is increased precision in the later documents are, are could are these doctrinal straitjackets, so to speak? Yeah, I think that that might be the impression that you get, you know, at first glance, because when you look, say, at the uh, the confessions of the, the Reformation era, which goes from, say, 1500 until 1565 with the conclusion of the Council of Trent, um, you know, there's a sense in which some of these documents are vibrant. Uh, they, uh, they, they just, they, they have seemingly more biblical 
and uh, kind of pastoral warmth, depending upon which one you're looking at. And uh, whereas by comparison, if you're looking at, say, the, the second Helvetic Confession, which was written in 1566, or the Canons of Dort, which is or which were written in 1618 and 19, or the Irish Articles in 1615, or the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, which was uh, uh, published in 1647, and then later in, in 47 and 48, the, the larger and shorter catechisms, you could definitely sense a difference between the documents. But as I would argue that these documents have only really formal differences. Whatever substantive differences there are, uh, owe to the different contexts in which they arose. Reformation era uh, confessions of faith often are like the individual statements of solos theologians, like Zwingli's Confession of Faith, or uh, uh, Calvin, um, Theodore Beza, and Pierre Verret wrote the French Confession in 1559 that was adopted by the French Church. Uh, uh, Guy de Bray, a solo individual uh, theologian, wrote the um, uh, the Belgic Confession in 1561. Uh, it was uh, Zacharias Ursinus, a single individual for the most part, who wrote the Heidelberg Catechism in 1563. And so naturally, when you only have a very small group of people, or famously the Scots Confession, written by six theologians named John, among whom were John Knox, um, you know, you just, you don't have to satisfy very many consciences. But when you take something like the Westminster Confession of Faith, where over the course of, you know, four to five years, you have more than a hundred different theologians and pastors involved in writing, all of a sudden you have to accommodate a number of different concerns and, uh, and people's consciences. And then to boot, on top of that, when you compare, say, the Westminster Confession, which is some 80 years after the Reformation, there is a lot of doctrinal controversy that unfolds over those eight decades, which means that anytime you have a disagreement, it's always going to bring about the need for greater specificity so that you can clearly testify to the church to the church's critics and to the broader world, we mean this and not that. You know, famously at the Council of Nicaea, uh, Christ is of the same substance, homoousios, not homoousios of like substance. There, that one distinction rests upon one letter in the Greek alphabet, the Yoda. Uh, you know, so you have to get. Uh, greater degree of specificity. And what I argue is rather than being a straitjacket, when they kind of get down into the nitty gritty, some of these phrases in the confession are written in such a way not to exclude people, but rather to include as many people as possible so that they're not written in such a way as to lack, um, to be general so that people can affirm it or to box out a certain position, but rather to open it up to other views. So for example, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that God promised to Adam in the covenant of works life. It doesn't say eternal life. Well, there it's a, an example of brilliant ambiguity is what I say, which is it, there were some that believed that God only offered Adam uh, extended temporal life in the garden, whereas others uh, argued that he offered eternal life. 
well, if you say eternal life, you lose that, that group of people that didn't believe that Adam was offered eternal life. But if you just say life and you remain, let it re- remain a little bit ambiguous, well, then you can keep both groups together, unified, able to, able, being able to affirm the same document. So rather than, I think, significant differences, I think it's just the natural outgrowth of greater doctrinal controversy, greater numbers of people being involved in writing the documents, as well as the desire to include people rather than exclude them. Yeah, I think it does create a, a diversified orthodoxy, as, as you say in the book there. Mm-hmm. Well, we've talked we've talked some about the decline of confessions in the American church scene, and, and you address that uh, it, more in your third chapter. But there are also uh, seeds of anti-confessionalism back in the 16th century. Isn't that, isn't that right? Can yeah. you, can you speak some on that? Yes. I think that what you see, and this is, it's like I tell my students all the time, the times may change, but human nature doesn't. And in this regard, we've always, as you know, human beings, even prior to the fall struggled with authority so that when the serpent challenges Eve in the garden, did God say you shouldn't eat from the tree? You know, it's right then and there that Eve begins to, to, to waffle. And, you know, she adds things to God's command. God commanded them not to eat from the tree. And Eve says he commanded us not to touch it. And so there's a sense in which you can say the resistance to authority is always present. And so it was present even during the, the period of the Reformation with theologians such as Erasmus of Rotterdam, who uh, was the famous New Testament uh, you know, critic and scholar and and he uh, he did not want to use confessions of faith because essentially he embraced a form of humanism that he wanted to say wherever the truth goes that's where we want to go and we don't want these documents to uh, potentially keep us from going where the truth goes. Whereas somebody like Luther, he embraced humanism, but I would say that it was a confessionally bound humanism. There's a sense in which you could say that Luther's was an ecclesiastical humanism, and thus he was willing to work and use creeds and confessions because he saw them as being necessary uh, for the being as well as for the well-being of the church versus Erasmus's, um, uh, you know, you could call it mercenary humanism. In other words, he was, uh, you know, he went to the highest bidder, and at that particular point, the highest bidder was his own conscience. Uh, and so thus he did not want to use confessions of faith. So even during the Reformation itself, you see anti-confessional, uh, you know, strains that are present. And you could argue that they, the bud of, uh, of anti-confessionalism that you find in Erasmus uh, finds a garden blooming uh, in the 21st century. Well, you argue also that that confessionalism, it helps codify the church's historical witness. Mm -hmm. Um, You include a a wonderful story here in in a section about Calvin and Sotoletto that illustrates the point you're making here about about Reformed churches having a historical foundation. I'm wondering, can you share with us uh, what happened in that exchange? Yeah, it was during the Reformation when, at this point, Calvin had been exiled, interestingly enough, by Geneva because of a dispute over uh, who had the, the right to, to create the church's liturgy. And so the, t- the, the city council uh, basically pulled rank and then fired him for it because he opposed them. 
And so he was in Strasbourg, but uh, the Roman Catholic bishop of the, of the region wrote a letter to the city council of Geneva and was trying to woo them back to the, to the fold, to the Reformation or to the, uh, to the Roman Catholic church. And he accused the, uh, the reformers and which would ostensibly have included Calvin uh, as being, uh, you know, fomenters of novel doctrine. And, uh, and so, and essentially spreading false doctrine. And so Calvin, over the course of six days, he was approached and asked by the Geneva city council, would you please respond to him? And over the course of six days, Calvin composed his response. And when he did this, I mean, it's like a, I forget how many pages it is. It's like a, I don't know, 120, 130 pages long. So it's a really long uh, letter to say the least. You'd have to sit down and and probably read it over the course of a day. Um, But what Calvin argues, and this is what is, I think, so important, what we find embodied in our confessions is what uh, Scott Swain and Mike Allen have called a reformed Catholicity. In other words, it's a commitment of the Reformation to the teachings of the early church or to the Catholic faith. And by Catholic faith, I use the word Catholic with a small c. Not the Roman Catholic Church, but rather the universal church, the Catholic faith with a small c. So that Calvin told Sadoleto, we're not bringing novel doctrine to the Reformation. What we are doing is we are, we are returning to the to the the very best teaching of the church, the gold, if you will, of the church fathers. And in fact, he argued that it was the Reformation that was in greater continuity with the early church than the Roman Catholic Church of his day. And so, in that sense, you saw you you, you see a, a a number of works from the period, but most notably William Perkins' work that was called the Reformed Catholic where he showed where the Reformation agreed with the Roman Catholic Church, but then notedly and importantly, where the Church, the Reformed Church, disagreed with the Roman Catholic Church. But he was nevertheless keen on retaining that term Catholic, but he wanted his uh, readers to understand that they were Reformed Catholics, and, and where you see this come up, for example, in the confessions is I, I would you know, challenge anybody to look over what the confessions of the Reformation have to say about the Trinity, as well as about Christology, and take note as to how much those statements in whatever confession you find either trace the language of the early ecumenical creeds, uh, Nicene-Constantinopolitan creed, the, Ca- the Chalcedonian definition, the Council of Ephesus, or the Athanasian Creed, for example, uh, so that they either use the language of those creeds or they will explicitly endorse and commend those various creeds. And so uh, that right there is a perfect example, I think, of what we call you know, Reformed Catholicity that shows that we're not just, the Reformation wasn't something unto itself, but rather it joined hands with the early church and is thus Catholic in the very best sense of the word. I think that's really well explained. Thank you for that. You know, well, I I hope this book serves to help Christians think about the importance of creeds and confessional standards, both for how it may help them guard against wrong thinking, but also welcome a a diversified orthodoxy and, and, and be able to, to pass down and, and love those uh, who would come to treasure Christ and his church and, and future generations. 
Well, Dr. Fesco, it's been great to hear from you and and thank you for writing this book. But before we wrap up, Mm -hmm. can you tell us what you plan to work on next? Well, I've uh, I've got a couple of things in the pipeline. Uh, I've, uh, you know, this past uh, right around the same time as the need for creeds today, I published a book on the history of the Covenant of Works with Oxford University Press. It's called The Covenant of Works, Origins, Development and Reception. Uh, well, there's a follow-up to that book that is coming out with Mentor, which is uh, a subsidiary or an imprint of uh, Christian Focus Publications, and it's a book entitled "The First or the Adam and the Covenant of Works." And I have a section on there that does cover other historical issues that I don't cover in the uh, Oxford book, but then I also uh, unpack uh, eight eight chapters, I think, on the exegesis behind the doctrine. And then um, uh, another five or so chapters on the doctrine itself. So that book is all about the doctrine of the covenant of works uh, versus the earlier book that I've just published recently on the history uh, of that doctrine. So God willing, uh, that'll be out uh, hopefully in the fall, uh, maybe the early, uh, early, uh, early 2022. Uh, So that's hopefully what people can look forward to in the months to come. It sounds like really valuable work, and we'd love to have you back when when it's uh, when it's published. Sure, no, we'd love to do so. Yeah, but for now, thanks so much for writing this book. It's called "The Need for Creeds Today: Confessional Faith in a Faithless Age." It's out now with ba- Baker Academic, and Dr. Fesco. Thanks for joining us on the show. Hey, Zach, thanks so much for having me, and I look forward to joining you again in the not too distant future. Sounds good. And thanks everyone for listening. I'll see you again next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.